remain standing for the reading of God's word. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3 through chapter 4 verse 2. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Pray with me. Oh, Father God, thank you that we get to come together as a gathered church here um, in person. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that when you call us, you open our eyes to see truth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that that truth points us to Christ. And I pray this morning that we would humbly receive the reproof, correction, teaching that you have for us from your word. Thank you that we can um, know truth and that we can know you who are the truth. I pray for Justin as he comes, that you would give him words to speak. And um, yeah, we just are thankful for what you have for us this morning. May we receive it humbly. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Becca. Grab a seat. All right. So long passage we're looking at today, and, and really it's going to be introductory uh, in our sermon this morning on preaching. You're, that's right, we're preaching on preaching. 
And uh, how are we to, to respond to preaching? How are we to listen within preaching? And what is the, the purpose and role of preaching? It's kind of a, a strange thing that as the, the gathered church, we gather together weekly to come and hear from a person who opens God's Word, who speaks to us for 30, 45 minutes, or if you're a part of Ecclesia, sometimes at the extent of an hour. Uh, but we, we gather together to open up this truth of Scripture, and we teach it. And we hear from God in that, and we're reminded of God of that. And this text that we read this morning is a, a passage where Paul is passing on. He's, he's instructing young Timothy. This was someone he was in this disciple-making relationship with. He was uh, a mentor of Paul. And so Timothy is, is being passed down this information, and Paul is right at the point of where he's about to be executed. This is the end of his life, and he's passing on these last-minute instructions. This is his heartfelt message, and we read in, in this passage as we first jump into it is this description of what these times are going to look like, and it's a description of the problems that are going to be faced in the world that, that we live in, and these are problems that if you're a uh, of, of any person who's involved in culture, probably you've experienced some of these problems. You've experienced some of these pains. You've experienced some of these troubles. And what Paul is going to describe to Timothy is, this is how we're going to endure through the Word of God. That when people rise up and there's lovers of self and lovers of money and people are proud and arrogant and abusive, when they're disobedient to their parents, when they're ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeasable, slanderous, without self-control, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I'm like, that's the culture in which we live. How, what, what, what is it that he gives them as, as a solution? And, and what he ultimately says in verse 12 is, those who hold to truth are going to be persecuted. Those who live for Jesus will face persecution, but allow the scriptures and allow God's word to guide, to instruct, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. I sat with uh, a family about two weeks ago, and uh, this is a, a student of someone here in our church who's graduating, going off to college, and it was a beautiful ceremony where we kind of sat in their living room, but we, we kind of spoke a charge over him as he goes off to college. And what's interesting is some of these very same words that Paul is instructing Timothy is some of the very same words I heard his parents speak over him, that the word of God, the truth of God, that it is a guide, that it is a, 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 a really a, a signpost. It's pointing you to what is true. It needs to continue to be an anchor in your life. You need to continue to be reminded of it, continue to, be, to, to remember what you have learned and continue in it knowing from whom you've learned it and how you've been acquainted from childhood. You've been acquainted with these sacred writings which are able to make you wise. 
And it was reminding him that, that obviously there's going to be a lot of cultural stories that are told. And what story is it that you're going to live your life and direct your life by? And then he says in verse 16, he says, all scriptures breathed out. It talks about the usefulness of scripture in this passage, that scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. And so Paul is telling Timothy here, the word of God is useful. And then the start of chapter four, what does he say? Then preach it. What we do when we gather here is we preach the Word of God, and I want you to see that as we gather, obviously we kind of look at this 35, 45, 55 minute time as preaching, but in reality, I I want us to have a bigger perspective in that all of our Sunday gathering really is preaching. All of our Sunday gathering is directing our attention when we come in, and it is a call to worship. It is teaching us that it is God who is inviting us to come near, that it is God who has called us to come together as His church and worship Him. When we come and we receive communion, it is teaching us, it is, it is preaching to us the gospel of Jesus. And so it is all teaching, it is all preaching, and, but I also want us to really narrow down in, in this time of going, what is this time for, this 35, 45, 55 minute time for, what are we to do here, what is this for? And it's kind of a rare space. There's very few spaces where we go and the transfer of information is done in a style like this, where we stand up in front and we teach. Many of us grew up and we went to school and we sat in lecture type and and eventually we're like, I'm done with that. But for some reason, willingly, we come and we participate. Why? Because we, we desire to be corrected. We desire to be equipped for every good work. We desire to have the Word of God poured over our lives and be reminded of the truth of Scripture. And so, Paul is going to tell Timothy here, preach. The reason we preach is because we believe that in preaching God's Word, the authoritative Word of God, that that we are changed, that we are transformed, that we are encouraged, that we are equipped to do everything God has asked us to do. Now, when we look at Paul and Timothy here, there, there's a, a, a kind of a, a back and forth and kind of an underlining story that's happening in this text. And you have to go back to, to 2 Timothy chapter 2 to see this. In verse uh, Chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, it says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully handling the word of of truth, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. And so we, we see this picture and what he's addressing here is the false teachers that there's going to rise up people who teach, but they're not correctly and wisely handling the truth of God. 
And so our desire here at Ecclesia is that we want to correctly handle the truth of God. And the fact that if we're going to correctly handle the truth of God, there's a sense of where that there actually is truth to be found. And that's what we really got to wrestle with. And really what I want to make sure is foundational to our conversation on preaching this morning is, is what do we preach? I... Let me, let me get a little bit nerdy here for you a bit. I, I got a new coffee machine at my house, okay? And I'm a guy, I read all the instruction manuals, so I'm like combing through. I want to do everything. I'm all about like good stewardship. So if it tells me to do something, how to clean it, what to put in it, everything, I, I want to follow all the steps exactly, all right? And so it told me that there is a, a certain amount of TDS, total dissolved solids, that you want in your water quality, all right? I told you it was going to get nerdy, right? And so I went around the house, and I'm like, how in the world? I need my total dissolved solids in my water to be about 50. So I test the tap water. Tap water is like 350, okay? Well, that's not going to work. And I I have a Berkey water filter, you know? And so I go, and I I use my Berkey water filter, and I see what, and it comes in at like 150. I go to my reverse osmosis water, and it's zero. And I'm like, well, that's not enough. And so, you know, I'm I'm trying to blend these together. And and you're like, well, how did you test this? Well, I had a meter. And it's nerdy, right? Like, so I'm sitting there with this little water meter trying to figure out what I put in my coffee machine to get the perfect tasting coffee. And you're like, why in the world did we have to make it so difficult, right? But I have this meter, and I'm testing all these cups of water in my house, and my wife is just laughing at me. And, and I'm testing all these different cups of water, and I'm using this, this specific device to do so. And here's the thing. Accuracy is a crucial element of any instrument that we use to test with, right? Any analytical instrument that we're going to use, it's important that it's accurate, right? And any instrumental tool that is analyzing something like that, there has to be some calibration. There has to be some sense of where we look at something that we know is true to see if this is actually accurate. And so there's a calibration to it. Here's what I want us to hear. Our lives have to be calibrated to a standard. Our lives need a standard of truth in which to live by, and God's Word is the authoritative foundational truth. It is the standard to which we hold to and believe, and it's the standard to which that if we were to be taught in it, if we are to teach it and preach it, that in doing so, that we will be equipped for every good work. This is the standard. Where there isn't a standard, then anyone can just say, this is the standard. And so we need a foundational absolute truth. What happens when you don't like the standard? You dismiss the standard. And that's the very same thing we do with God's Word. When we don't necessarily, when God's Word rubs us the wrong way, we want to dismiss the standard. And the basis of this is the inerrancy of Scripture. That's what I want to start with because unless we believe that this Bible is inerrant, when I talk about inerrant, we talk about it being without error. If the Bible is not a standard, then we're wasting our time here. 
If the Bible is not a standard, if it's not the authoritative word of God, then why is it that we sit and we gather for an hour on Sunday morning and and to, to be taught by it? And so I want to encourage you, and I want to lean in for just a few minutes talking about why this is foundational, and if it is foundational, what should we do with it? That's where we're going this morning. So to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, inerrancy basically says, as the Bible claims, and you can talk about it being a circular argument, but the Bible claims to be the Word of God, that all Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed out these words, as it tells us in Matthew uh, or 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all it's accomplished. Now, if you're there and you're like, what's the iota and a dot? Well, if you've never studied Hebrew, Hebrew has little dots around it that help us understand what it actually says. So when you look at the Hebrew language, there's little inscriptions above and within the letter, and he's saying that not even one of those little dots or iotas is going to be missing. It is talking about the preservation of Scripture. And if none of those will pass away, then there's a sense in which look at, looking at God's Word, how we lean in and we go that this is truth, that it's truth to be, and we have to go, well, what about translations? I'll get into that in just a second. Inerrancy is an important matter. Now, there's people who want to make a claim that inerrancy wasn't an issue until the 20th century. There's people who want to make a claim that inerrancy wasn't an issue until the 19th century. The truth is, inerrancy was a problem in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. When Satan come to the woman, and as in his approaching the woman, he said, did God truly say, did God? He begins to question the truthfulness of God. It says in 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty, crafty than any, any other beast of the field, and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say? Here's what inerrancy is all about. You have an enemy that is out to change or, or alter what God actually said. And if we don't have what God actually said, then what do we have? And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we see the fighting or the argument over inerrancy. Do we have the very words of God? We see in in our culture that there's been numerous times throughout church history that inerrancy has surfaced. In the 1960s and 1970s, there was a big push. This is where we get uh, the Chicago claim of inerrancy, where over 200 evangelicals gathered together to fight for the truth and inerrancy of Scripture, to preserve the truth of God's Word. And we see even a push even today as inerrancy is falling under review and and it's being talked about in numerous different circles. And we have to ask ourselves even today, will we preserve the truth of Scripture for the generation to come? I recently listened to a panel of 
of, uh, of teachers describe the fight over inerrancy, and they talked about for years and years and years, for several different denominations fighting over inerrancy, that people sacrificed, literally they would drive all over the country, that they would be there to be with a group of people, to vote and to fight for the inerrancy of Scripture. Listen, church, we, we live in a place in which it, it doesn't really take a seminary-trained or professing person to be able to stand up on Sunday morning and teach. Basically, anybody who wants to gather a crowd can stand up here and do so. And because people stand up and do so without being biblically trained and qualified, they don't know how to properly handle the truth of Scripture. And because of it, there's churches all around the world that are not teaching inerrancy. It's important. And it's important because when you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you basically make yourself the authority. Whenever you choose and you read God's Word, and most of the time when we think about, for, let me back up, talk about the, the fighting over inerrancy of Scripture, most of inerrant Scripture that, that we're fighting over comes down to you just don't like what you read. It rubs you the wrong way, and so it's easier to claim that the Bible is not true rather than you submit your life to the truth of Scripture. Ecclesia teaches, believes, and holds to the inerrancy of Scripture, which means the Bible in its original writings and manuscripts are completely accurate without error. Well, what about this translation? Because the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. What, what do we do with this? Well, that's very important. So we at Ecclesia, we teach from the English Standard Version. There's numerous different versions, and basically they go from word-for-word -word translation all the way down to thought-for-thought -thought or more like paraphrase in, in the terms of like the message translation. There's numerous different translations. I won't nerd out on you this morning, but here's the thing. You need to trust, and, and, and we need to respectively look at who was on the team that basically translated. Their translations have been passed down, and we have to go with our English Standard Version. When we read the words of Scripture, do we actually have the words of Scripture? If we, if we look at this and we go that all Scriptures breathed out by God, it's important that what we have here today is approximately the, the Word of God. We want to make sure that we're holding the very words of God, and that's why translation is very important. And so we, we hold to a very word-for-word -word translation. I really want to hold the accurate, I want the very words that, that were used in the original Hebrew and Greek and translate that. You can look back because of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think that was like the 1970s. You look back at tons of the manuscripts dating back to 170 AD. We have all of these manuscripts that tell us that what we hold is the very Word of God and that it's true. We're not guessing. We can actually look. We can match it up. And so what we hold is truth. Matthew Barrett, who's a New Testament theologian, says every generation, sorry, back up. 
I flipped the page too quick. Evangelicals today must guard themselves from those who would claim the Bible as their authority, but turn around and deny its truthfulness, either in part or in whole. Now, there's also a case of going, well, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture mostly, but there's some things I don't. And you don't get to do that. Because again, there, that lends itself to someone saying, what parts do we hold to and which parts do we not? Which parts are the standard and which parts aren't the standard? And again, it makes you the judge rather than the authority of God's Word. So, I say all of that and I get real passionate about that. Why? Because if we don't have that foundational truth, then we're wasting our time. We're wasting our time. If this is not truth, then the reason in which we gather is on a shaky foundation. And so today, we stand on the truth of God's Word. We hold to the fact that the Scriptures are inerrant. We should base our lives on it. And so what is our aim in preaching? Because we believe the Bible to be true, what are we seeking to do? What is it that we preach? And Christopher Wright, who's a missiologist, basically took the time to go through the Bible everywhere it says preach the gospel and basically help define what is it that we're doing in preaching, in teaching, and he laid that out. And I thought it was a great outline for today, and so I will teach that with uh, his outline with my own notes. Here we go. First thing, in preaching, what is it that we're doing? We're preaching a Christ-centered story to be told a Christ-centered story to be told. We desire here at Ecclesia, if you're gathered with us, we want you to be a story-formed people. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 authors, three continents, yet tells one unfolding story from Genesis to Revelation. This is the story of God. And most of us, to have a tendency to kind of pick and choose. A lot of times we think about devotionals. A lot of times devotionals don't give us the grand narrative of Genesis to Revelation of this grand unfolding story of God. And so we at Ecclesia, we desire to teach the whole counsel of God's Word, which means we're not just kind of cherry-picking Bible verses, which is why we typically, outside of the series that we're doing here today, walk through books of the Bible. Because we want you to see the unfolding narrative and context in which these, these writers were writing. And so when we study First Peter, what was it that was going on? What was the history? It was written to a specific people at a specific time, but yet it has significance and meaning into our life today. And so that's the application piece, but we want to be brought into the story. We want to see how the story is unfolding. Michael Goheen, who wrote uh, the drama of Scripture says this, and to be careful about breaking the Bible up into bits and segments. He said, many of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits, theological bits, moral bits, historical critical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits. But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, we ignore its divine author intention to shape our lives through the story. 
He says, if we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it's in danger of being absorbed into what other story is shaping our culture. And it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. The unity of Scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers. Like, wow, that's, that's dangerous. What do we do? Well, the, the, the hope is, is that it, at Ecclesia, we desire to teach the whole narrative of God's Word, and we want to bring you into that larger story. When you know the larger story, when you're biblically literate, when you're story-formed people, you see that there is another story at play that you're called and invited into rather than the cultural story that is unfolding. We all live our lives based on a story. There is a story that is playing out in which you are directing your life by. And so our desire and our job and, and our task in preaching is to bring you into the larger story. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that's our heart. When you come to Ecclesia, we hope that you don't get just 40 minutes of Justin Bindle or Greg Arinder or any one of our elders' opinion for 45 minutes. We hope to teach the Word of God, that the Word of God may dwell in you richly, that it would be abundant in your life. So we want you to be a story-formed people. Secondly, we preach because there's a hope-filled message to be proclaimed. There's a hope-filled message to be proclaimed. We want to create a hopeful people. We live in a world full of bad news, and we ask, where's the good news? And we gather each week to stir us and to remind us of the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the love of God, the restorative nature of God. And so when we look back, when we were in the middle of COVID and we were out at the park, we walked through the book of Philippians. Why? To stir hope, to remind us that there can be joy in the midst of all circumstances of life. We walked through First Peter here recently because when we feel out of place in the cultural climate, God has given us a home in heaven and that we're citizens and we're family and we're reminded it's meant to stir hope. Even here today as we talk about the gathered church, that God is gathering a body, that we would come together, that we belong to a family. And so it's, it's this great picture that he wants to stir hope in us. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, 16, if you ask, why do we preach? How then will they call on them whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so it's a picture here of going, we preach, we teach, we go and we're sent forth because we have good news to share. We want to bring hope to a world that is hopeless. The third thing, there's a revealed truth to be defended. We want to create a righteous people. 
a righteous people. In 2 Timothy um, 4, 5, it says, as for you, he's teaching Timothy here again, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then it goes on, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I, I think this is honestly the hardest part of preaching. That, that in preaching, what we do is we reveal a truth, and a lot of times that truth that we are revealing, it kind of goes against our nature. When we, we look at Scripture, for, for instance, when we were walking through 1 Peter chapter 2, we read, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Submit yourself to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors and, or those who punish those who do evil, praise them to do good, for this is the will of God. And, and we got probably in that sermon alone the most response that we've got from any other sermon. Why? Because I think that was the hardest thing that we've been called to obey. That there was a sense in which, in the midst of our culture, in the sense in which so many things have gotten politicized this last year, to obey government seemed really challenging. And we we're, we're, we're see this truth that God calls us to submit, and yet our nature says, no way. And as a pastor, really what you need to pray for us is, is that we don't just preach what you want to hear. That we know that you have itching ears. We know that you desire to accumulate yourself teachers and people and books and resources that agree with whatever soapbox you agree to. You, you have itching ears. You want to gather people that agree with you on that topic rather than hear the truth of God's Word. And so, here's the thing. I would tell you, if, if you're here today and you're desiring to, to gather yourself teachers to scratch your itching ears, then I want you to know that that church exists. There are plenty of churches that will tell you what you want to hear. But I want you to know they're out to gain your approval, not the approval of God. And so you have to be careful. When we teach, when we teach from God's Word, what we're doing is we're asking God, God, what is it from this text that you're asking us to obey, believe, repent, confess? Why? To look like Jesus, that Jesus would make in us and we would become a righteous people. J. Gresham Machen, who was a, a big fighter against liberalism in the 19, 1900s, early 1900s, till uh, he died in 1920, he says this, one thing needs always be remembered. True Christianity, now as always, is radically contrary to the natural man. And it cannot possibly ma be maintained without constant struggle. Which means... Every single time you come in here on a Sunday morning, there's going to be a wrestle. 
There's going to be a struggle, and there's going to be a tension, because there is something that God is calling you from the truth of Scripture to obey, repent, and follow Him in believing. There's a new status to be received, and so that's the next one is that as we come together, as we preach on Sunday mornings, we want to help firm you up in your identity. When we go, let's, let's turn over. You got your Bible? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. I kick through this a lot. This is one of my favorite books of the Bible. In, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, that we should be blameless. We've been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. We've received the forgiveness of our trespasses. We see all of this language firming us up in our identity. When we come to gather what we preach, what our responsibility is, is to help remind you of what your identity is in Christ. You live in a culture that says you must perform to be loved. You must do something to be accepted. We live in a performance-based culture. And what the Bible tells us is we don't work for an identity, we work from an identity. It's not that, that God wants lazy Christians. It's not that he doesn't want you to produce. It's just saying you don't have to produce to be loved. You're loved, so go and produce. And so every week we get to come together, we get to open the scriptures, we get to open the truth of God's word and to be reminded, what does this Bible say about me? Who am I in relationship to God? It's a reminder. And if you're anything like me, you don't need the world to critique you because many of us are our own worst critics. And so we need to come and be reminded from God each and every week of the truth of who we are. I have this tattoo on my arm. It says, Beloved. It has my kids' names, Lila Kate, Jet, and Jackson. Now here's the thing. I, I put that there not only as a reminder of that's who my kids are to me, but really that's a reminder to me of that's who I am to God. That in the same way that I look at my kids and I'm like, man, my kids could never do anything. As frustrating as they were getting ready this morning, as challenging as they were to fix their hair and, and put their clothes on and not fight with one another, their dad loves them. Their dad cares for them. And it's a reminder in the same way that I do that imperfectly. God the Father loves me perfectly. And so what we get to do, Sunday mornings are our tattoo for a tattooless culture, all right? So if you're here this morning and you're like, you're, you're like, hey, I'm not into tattoos, Sunday morning is our tattoo. It's a reminder. If you ask anybody, why do they have tattoos? It's sig significance. It's a reminder. It's something that they want to remember. And, and it's occasionally that we come together that we're getting that spiritual tattoo. We're getting reminded every week when we come together, this is who we are. Now, if you're here and you're a kid and you're like, see, our pastor told us to get tattoos. I was 30 years old before I got my first one. You should wait till you're 30 as well. The next thing, a transformed life to be lived. When we preach, it's to bring about transformation. It's to bring about change. It's to create in our church a transformed people. 
In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Peter is here preaching. I want you to see the response. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, brother, what shall we do? There was a sense in hearing God's word, they, they go, we must do something. And, and what I love about that is, is that's a great picture of what should happen here every single Sunday morning, that we are asking the Holy Spirit to utilize the words in which we teach and teach from, that God would use these words to cut us to the heart, that we would go, what must I do? How do I respond? I love that Greg, every Sunday morning, comes and gives us an opportunity to kind of just slow down and respond. We're not just to be, as James 1.22 says, not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. The purpose of our teaching is not just the passing of information, but that it would actually lead to transformation. Our desire and our heart is that our time here gathered on Sunday morning, that it would change us, that we would leave differently than when we came in. And so I would just encourage you, even as we gather, what is one thing that I heard this morning that changes the way that I live? What is one truth from God's word this morning that, that changes how I'm going to conduct my life this week? That there's an opportunity to stop and respond. We live in an information age where information, we're constantly being bombarded by information, but rarely are we actually pausing and processing that information? I remember uh, my, my college pastor when I was in, in college, he would frequently, at the end of any time, he would come by and he would just like poke his head and he's like, hey, what's God teaching you? And I'm like, I mean, I, I, he always caught me off guard. But it'd just be like at the end of the sermon, just like imagine me walking up to you at the end of the sermon today and be like, hey, what, what's God teaching you this morning? And it really just taught me that there, there's to be a response, that there's to be an opportunity, that the Word of God would just not be snatched out of our lives. I think about the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, where we see the, the Word of God fell, like that we're sowing seed, that right now I'm sowing seed, and that for many of us, we're going to go out and we're going to leave and we're going to walk out the door and we're going to go on about our life and we're going to go to lunch today. And the seed, because the soil of our life was not ready, the soil of our life was not ready to receive the implanted Word of God, we, we just leave and we, we kind of wasted our time. And so there's a moment we want to respond to God's Word because we want to be a transformed people. And then lastly, we preach and teach because there's a divine power to be celebrated. We want to be a celebratory people. Our heart and our desire to gather here is that the power of God through His Word, that it would work in us, it would transform us, it would change us, that it would create fruitfulness in our life, that we would see the beauty of who God is and the beauty of the work in which He's creating in us, that we would move to be a celebratory people that we would have hope, that we would be encouraged. And so, I close with this text, 
And I just ask and I pray that this text, even this morning as we read it, there's power in God's words. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I, I pray that the power of these words would speak to you. This is why we preach. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or attempts to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Why? Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day so that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses in God. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you as believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believes. We preach as fathers who love their children. We teach as ones who don't just want to share the gospel, the word of God with you, but people who want to share our lives with you. We teach as not people who are out to please and to bring flattering words or to gain your approval, but as people who desire and long to gain the approval of God, who test our hearts in genuineness in doing so. And we teach so that you would hear and that you would accept these words not as words from Justin Bendel, but as words from the Word of God Himself. There's power in that. There's fruit in that. And it says at the very end of verse 13, which is at work in you. The very Word of God works in your life to produce fruit. Our heart and our desire as we become a biblically informed, a biblically literate people 
is that as Psalm 1 says, that you would be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. That it would be an ever-nourishing stream of water that floods your life. Whether it's in regards to your transformation, whether it's in regard to your celebration, whether it's in regard to, to your hopefulness, whether it's in regard to you falling into the story of God, our desire, our heart is that you would know God's word, that you would love God's word, and that honestly, in, in areas where you doubt God's word, that you would, you would wrestle with God the Father to seek to obey, to seek to walk in humility to his scripture, the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the gift the word of God is to us. We thank you that you have given us not just a resource, not just a tool, but you gave us your very self. It's the word of God that reveals to us who God is. You speak to us through your word. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for that. I thank you for the gift that is to our body, to our church. And I pray that we would hold to the truthfulness of Scripture. Lord, that, that we would wrestle in, in areas that we would not deny the truth of Scripture, but that we, we would seek to align our lives with the Scriptures. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that as we gather each and every week, that we would be reminded, that we would be rebuked, that we would be challenged, that we would be transformed, that we would be moved to hope, and that we would leave celebrating the truth of what this text tells us about who we are and how you're at work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.